Oh, that's dramatic. What the fuck that is? It just it's, it's, I, I've had it already with another podcast here in Israel. It's, it's actually it's asking it's... me. It's asking me permission to let you record. It's oh, nice. really? This is new. Yes, uh... It's like it's polite of them. It's okay. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> Hello and welcome to another installment of History Hat. We've got a treat for you today because not only is this a returning guest that you will absolutely love, uh, but he's decided he wants to be controversial today and he's always at his best when he's winding people up. Gilad Jaffe, have we spoken to you since you left Israel on History Hack? We have, we have. I think, the, yeah, yeah, the last one, the scientific one was, was already from Berlin. So how is Berlin? It's wet, right? And all your Israeli friends hate you because you have rain. Yes, yes, because we have like 20 degrees in rain and they have like 40 degrees in sun, so they want to kill me. Yeah, so we joked. It's good that there's COVID because they can't come. <laughs> yeah, we joked that you were like, uh, what's his name? Andy Dufresne, when he crawls out of the sewage yeah. train in the Shawshank Redemption into the rain and is like, la! Yes, yeah, exactly. That's you right now. Uh, so tell us, in what way are you going to be controversial today? Well, you asked me for a topic and I said, let's let's just go all in and try and explain why, what is the big problem with the story of David and Solomon? So just is, outline for people, what is the story of David and Solomon? It might be the most famous, uh, there are a couple of issues regarding it. First of all, it's one of the most famous stories. I mean, it's King David and his son Solomon. First of all, uh, King David is the first true king of the kingdom of Israel, according to the Bible. Um, if we put aside the whole story with Saul, which is, is kind of a by-story, it's a different issue. Um, and of course, his son, his heir, Solomon, is the one who built the first temple on Temple Mount, uh, which might you might say that is the reason why the whole Middle East is still blowing up today, because mm. of Temple Mount, basically. <laughs> Um, uh, this is Temple Mount that you told us if archaeologists ever started digging it up, the world would end, right? Yes, yes. My, my, my exact phrase is always the same. If you dig up Temple Mount, you'll only find World War Three. That's yep. all you'll find. Under this. Um, so, uh, and another thing is that uh, in relation to the Jewish religion uh, and the Jewish people, it's it's kind of a founding story. It's, it's a story on which the whole even the whole current political narrative uh, in the Middle East is based on this kind of the land that was given to the Jews and the land of King David and the land of King Solomon. And when you come out and say, well, I don't think they really existed and people don't like it. Yeah, because we're talking about the Star of David, aren't we? For someone who's a total amateur when it comes to Jewish history. Um, the Star of David is a much, much later symbol. It has nothing to do, actually, with David himself. It's not that David, then. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's related uh, by proxy to that David, but it, yeah. it's, not like, it's not like the Star of David was something you could see on the shield of a warrior in David's army. It's not, oh, like, okay. the, it's, it's not like the SPQR of the Romans. It's oh, so like it's a bit like deciding that Jesus' birthday was on Christmas Day when he was born in April. Exactly. It's a, bit, it's a bit like placing the year of zero on Jesus' birthday and then saying that Herod was chasing him when Herod died at 4 BC. So you have a four-year gap. You know, you're familiar with the millennium paradox, right? Exactly. Right. Okay. Let's talk about archaeologists. Okay. You love stirring, don't you, you lot? Why did you once believe that David and Solomon existed? Not you personally, but your yeah. field. Well, it all goes back to the simple 
and first reason why excavations in what we now call Israel, Palestine, whatever you choose, uh, began. It began in the late 19th century for one reason alone, to find the Bible. The paradigm, the, the line of thought was simple. If it's written in the Bible, it has to have happened and we have to find it in the ground. Simple enough. Um, so you have to ask yourself, what are you finding? Are you finding what is actually on the ground or are you finding what you want to find? And believe me, give me enough time in an archaeological excavation, I can find for you whatever you want. Yeah. So that, that was the basic school of thought that the Bible is uh, authentic historical document and we just have to dig it up. And this went on until uh, that the height of this of this wave was around the 60s and 70s when the famous archaeologist uh, Yadim excavated both Chatzol and Megiddo, the famous Megiddo, the famous Armageddon. And he found architectural similarities, mainly between the gates of both cities. Mm -hmm. And he dubbed them the Solomonic Gates. Now, why this? Because there is a verse in the Bible, in the Book of Kings, uh, that says that Solomon built Megiddo and Chatzor and Gezer. And these three sites do have similar looking gates, gatehouses, excuse me. And so he said Solomonic Gates. He said, this is a proof that Solomon existed. This is not the proof that Solomon existed. This is the proof of Solomon's big uh, united kingdom, which according to the Bible, I don't know if you know, but the kingdom of Solomon was somewhere from, including diplomatic relations, somewhere from the Nile up into the Euphrates. Okay, so that's more or less the whole French and British mandate of the early 20th century. And and that, that was it. And that, that like it settled into the to the uh, common knowledge. And and by the mid seventies, no one thought differently. I so love I, this whole concept of um, proving the Bible. Is that's what Kitchener was doing in the eighteen seventies, right? That's why he went to Palestine. He went to Palestine again. It was to do a decent map, but to find the Bible. Again, yes, yes, exactly. I, the, the, the leading thought was, this is the Holy Land, the land of the Bible, and let's find these places. The first one was actually, even before Kitchener, it's, it was Edward Robinson mm -hmm. in 1838. And believe it or not, Edward Robinson in 1838 managed to pinpoint places that are still, are still correct today. It's amazing. Wow. We're talking about nearly 200 years ago when he didn't have GPS, he hardly had good maps. And when he said, this is Megiddo, it was Megiddo. It's the same. We site. laugh at Victorian archaeologists because they're a nightmare, aren't they? They just smashed off up and ruined everything. But you're saying that actually there's some really mm, cool well. It depends. No, they didn't ruin up everything. Well, no, you have to judge things by the period. I mean, they were a product of their period. This is how they excavated. When, when um, McAllister and Bliss excavated in Tel Gezel, uh, you excavated in trenches. It's, it's the best way to see it is the way that it was. Uh, shown in the Netflix movie, The Dig. Yes. Which I recommend if you want to understand how excavations worked until the late 1950s, it's a great example. They did it lovely. They really did it beautifully. It shows exactly how it worked. It worked in large, wide trenches and that's how you excavated. There wasn't squares, there wasn't stratigraphy, there was hardly any, any uh, forensic documentation. None of this existed. You, you can't blame them. This is how they worked. They didn't know anything else. Um, but back to the paradigm. Yeah, when does this change? When do they suddenly decide? So it's all based on these gatehouses. That's the proof. 
gatehouses, uh, buildings that are called, I'm, I'm doing with my fingers, you know, yeah, air yeah. Quotes, but they can't see, so I'm telling you it's air quotes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> buildings that are called palaces, yeah. which uh, defining a building as a palace is, is a problematic, is, is a really big thing. So I, I, I'm- Is it just like, that they go for the biggest buildings and call them palaces? something like that i mean it's 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 problematic but it's a different different discussion yeah yeah um and of course of course the pottery and mm -hmm. we'll get to the pottery soon because the pottery is the key to understanding why not everybody agrees with this paradigm today okay. uh somewhere around the mid late 80s um based on excavations in other sites like uh, lachish in southern israel um suddenly new voices were heard People are saying, we're not sure that uh, what we thought until today is right. And now we have to differentiate between what the biblical narrative is and the archaeology. They can be two separate stories. It doesn't have to be the same. It's okay. The fact that you believe in the Bible doesn't mean that you have to find it or that it's an exact historical document because from a scientific point of view, it's not an exact historical document. We can't, we can't treat it as that. It has too much inner conflicts. It doesn't line up in a lot of places. Um, you find, uh, take for example, just a small example, uh, you find mention of the Philistines in, in the book of Abraham. Now, what are the Philistines doing there if Abraham is dated much earlier than the arrival of the Sea Peoples? Uh, all these kinds of little conflicts within the text make it a bit problematic. But it doesn't mean was, there is no God. It doesn't mean there is no God. It doesn't mean you don't believe in God. It doesn't affect in any way your belief. It just says that the archaeology tells one story. The Bible is telling us another story. We have to ask ourselves, why are these stories different? Mm -hmm. yeah, that's the thing. Archaeology is in no way trying to disprove the Bible. That's one, one thing that you hear a lot, that biblical archaeologists want to disprove the Bible. No. We're doing whatever archaeologist does. We're just telling the story as it comes out from the finds in the ground. Mm -hmm. But if it doesn't line up, ask yourself, why doesn't it line up? Why doesn't it line up, Gillard, with King David? <laughs> we'll, we'll get to that in the end. And keep you on your toes. Um, now, the big boom happened in the, in the beginning of the 90s when uh, yeah. a big uh, article was published by he is now a world-renowned professor. I studied with him, Israel Finkelstein. And basically, he was the first one to say, okay, there was no united monarchy. We can't see it. Archaeologically-wise, there was no united monarchy. Um, all the finds that we thought were related to David or later to Solomon, we have to push them. Now, this is a good part. Push them down 100 years. Now, I'll explain. A find, an archaeological find, is a find. Just for example, take a look at the desk in front of you. I'm telling you and I'm telling the people who are listening. The desk is the same desk. It's a desk from July 2021 in, I don't know, England, Israel, wherever you are. With cat claw marks in, in my case. With cat claw marks in it. Excellent. <laughs> now, I could claim, I'll claim that this desk is from 2021. Another archaeologist will say, no, no, no. This desk is from 2121. We have a 100-year gap. The desk hasn't moved. Only the perception of the archaeologists of that desk has changed. Okay. Where they put it on the timeline. And that's, that's the thing to remember. You have to remember that the finds don't move. In, the gates haven't moved. Neither of the palaces. Nothing. Mm -hmm. Now, wh where does this all tie in together? 
the basis of the new theory of this, what, what's called today the low chronology, where it actually says you have to push everything down 100 years to the late 9th and 8th century, comes from the pottery. We have sites like Megiddo and Chatzor and Geza, which we mentioned that were excavated and were the basis for the whole uh, Yadin theory, the earlier theory. Sites like Samaria, for example, which isn't far from Tel Megiddo, I think it's about 20, 30 kilometers maximum. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a huge site, a huge site from the Iron Age, we're talking about 10th to 7th century BC, and a huge Roman site later, if you heard of Sebastia, that's the same site. And in Samaria, buildings similar to the ones in Megiddo were found. Pottery that looks almost the same, and some of it exactly the same was found. But here's the catch. The same pottery in Megiddo was dated 10th century, and in Samaria was dated 9th century. I'm talking about the earlier excavations, not, not the new ones trying to change. And then I can see, they can see, but I can see your face, and that's the face. How come we have two sites? 30 kilometers apart and exact same finds and one is dated to the 10th century BC and one is then dated to the 9th century, century BCE. The answer isn't in archaeology. <laughs> That's the most funniest thing. The answer is in the Bible. Why? Because Megiddo is mentioned as one of the sites that Solomon built, like I mentioned earlier, that on that Yadin based his whole theory. So it has to be, the pottery has to be 10th century because Solomon was in the 10th century. Samaria isn't mentioned, so we can date it as it is. And here lies the problem. Samaria is less biased. So the pottery over there is more uh, accurate, let's say, the dating over there. We can okay. trust it more. So if we base the dating of Samaria and move it on to Megiddo, we have to take Megiddo another 100 years down, which means the Solomonic Gates, the palaces, and all those, all those uh, stratums all have to move 100 years lower, which means they cannot be belong, be, excuse me, they cannot be assigned to Solomon with it. And that's the problem. Oh dear. So archaeologically, what we're looking at is some kind of general architectural plan that a uh, similar plan in all the land of Israel and beyond it uh, of same uh, form of gates, same form of buildings, which were dubbed palaces, same pottery style, but none of it connects, none of it connects chronologically to the era we can assign to Solomon. So when does it go? It probably goes to the Israelite kings of the eighth century just before uh, the first deportation by Tiglath Pileser by the Assyrian deportation. Are you with me? I am, this is fascinating. So the question is, okay, if this means that all these finds belong to a later, uh, a later ruling dynasty, let's mm -hmm. call it the Omrid dynasty from the Bible, where are Solomon and David? And the answer is, I'll give you the answer. Uh, before I give the answer, I'll, I'll tell you there's a nice uh, saying in archaeology that I really like. It's a question that asks, is it the absence of evidence or the evidence of absence? You have to think about it. What are we looking at here? 
We can't say for sure that David and Solomon didn't exist. Because in some form they did. Why? Because there's one find, one, only one find in all of Israel. I'm talking about an actual archaeological uh, dated find from an excavation that mentions King David. Mm. It's from Tel Dan up in the north. It's from the late 8th century. And it talks about a battle between two Israelite kings and an Aramaic king. And he, he won, of course, because he wrote the stale, so he won. And he mentions that he won two, that he beat two kings from the house of David. Is this a biblical David? Probably. But again, it only states they were from the house of David. It says nothing about, about actually being King David. Yes, or about the size or power of that kingdom. Right. But we can't say there wasn't any David because we have an archaeological find. You can't ignore it. Okay. You can be as, as revisionist as you want. You can be as rebellious as you want, but the facts are the facts. And if you're a good archaeologist, stick to the facts. Some kind of King David existed. He had a lineage, and that lineage fought against that Aramaic king and lost in that battle in the 8th century. But why? Why? I'll ask you this. Why, if it's such a big, according to the Bible, if the David and Solomon kingdom was such a big united monarchy, how come there is no extra biblical reference to it? I'm putting aside the, the King David uh, inscription I just talked about. Okay. What do I mean extra biblical evidence? You would expect such a big kingdom to have diplomatic relations. Yeah. To have some form of... Uh, of um, um, <laughs> You'd look for some kind of trace of them outside their own you, wouldn't you? They would, must have touched something outside themselves. We're talking about diplomatic relations and we're talking about trade relations. Yes. Where is it? Now, people in this period documented bureaucracy like crazy. You can't find a lot of poetry. You can find religious texts and yeah. you can find bureaucratic texts. I mean, it's amazing to, to see how early bureaucracy started. The only reason we have writing is for bureaucracy, just so you know. Well, that's why <laughs> like even the Incas with the colored string that no one can translate, with all the exactly. knots in it, that is bureaucracy, isn't it? It is, it is, it is. It, it's, it's intended to count, to, yeah. to keep inventory, to know how much you gave, how much you get back. It's, it's bureaucracy at the end of the day, it's trade. This is such a big United Kingdom. From the Nile to the Euphrates, we're talking about Egypt, Israel, Lebanon, Syria, Iran, Iraq, Jordan. Yeah. And nobody communicated. One shard of pottery with writing. Yeah. One inscription, something. We're talking about 10th, 9th century BC. There is writing all over the place, all over the place. We have Akkadian writings from even 300 years early. We have yeah, we have linear, say, linear the, B inscriptions from Crete. What's the comparison, like, for other, though you mentioned a whole raft of countries, is there a total absence in general of stuff, or you're saying that there is plenty no, no, no. for everyone there's else? Just, there's just no inscription that mentions any form of relations between, between uh, the United Monarchy, the Solomonic United Monarchy, and other neighbouring countries from the same period. So the there's mention is the other countries, and it's just them that's not mentioned. Exactly. Now, the only mention is, think of it, in the Bible. And in the Bible, you hear about how Solomon uh, reached out to Hiram, king of Sidon, to get him, yeah. to bring him trees, to, bring the, to, to build the temple. All of this correspondence in the Bible, and there's nothing in the ground. Completely nothing. 
that's problematic, isn't it? Skip to skip to 853 BC. This is an important year. Mm -hmm. It's the Battle of Kalkal. This is a battle between Shalmaneser, uh, a Syrian king, who's coming to uh, actually um, uh, stop some kind of mutiny against him in the shoreline kingdoms, meaning the Levant, okay. Syria, Lebanon, Israel today. The kingdoms know that he has a big army. They can't each one stand against him alone. So they form a coalition to fight him. And of course, we have three stelas with inscriptions by Shalmaneser, which are archaeologically found and dated and they're authentic and everything's fine with them. And three copies of the same writing in which he boasts how he won that coalition. Now, put aside the whole, um, the whole, uh, you know, reading of the text, if he did or didn't win, it's irrelevant now. What's relevant is that to, in order to make himself sound so successful, he lists all the kings, all the kings that fought against him. And the third on the list, and I'm quoting from the inscription, is Ahab, king of Israel, with 20,000 chariots. Now, we have three important important things in this sentence. Ahab, king of Israel, 20,000 chariots. He is the biggest force in all the coalition. And it's Ahab and it's Israel. So basically, this is the, maybe the only biblical king from the big uh, uh, stories of the Book of Kings that's mm -hmm. mentioned in an extra biblical source, an authentic uh, not sold on the market, found by some British lord and brought to the British Museum stuff. This is actually something authentic and it mentions a, king, a biblical king from Israel leading the biggest force in a coalition against one of the strongest Assyrian kings ever. And you would have to say, wouldn't you, that it's anyone wielding 20,000 chariots, that doesn't happen overnight. That's an established... Anything, anyone wielding 20,000 chariots can build a city like Megiddo can build a city like Hatzor, can build a site like Tel Jezreel, which is again 15 kilometers from Megiddo. And you know what's in Tel Jezreel? There's nothing but a perimeter wall and towers. It looks like a city, mm. but it's empty inside. Why would you need about, I think it's a hundred meter square area walled with guarded towers? Maybe somewhere to park your horses and chariots. Yeah. Well, you're not, you don't put in a pre-mechanized era, you don't put that amount of work in unless there's a damn good reason, do you? Of course, of yeah. course. So the theory, the low chronology theory today, actually assigns all these finds, these classical period finds uh, about David and Solomon, actually to Ahab and the Omri dynasty, which is mid to late ninth century BC, 100, 100 and some years, after Solomon. Do we have direct evidence for Solomon? No. We have one find regarding David, which I mentioned. Mm. And there are two, like, let's say, um, battling, in air quotes, uh, uh, schools of thought regarding this. There's a low... Yeah, a tell, tell us about, like, the, the two sides of archaeologists that scream at each exactly, other. Exactly, that's, that, that's exactly where I'm going. Thinking alike. Mm 
um, uh, you have the minimalist school, yeah, which is called minimalist because uh, they minimize the authenticity and the believability of the Bible, and you okay. have the maxim maximalist. You have the Jerusalem school, which is the maximalist, which thinks that the Bible is uh, not to a hundred percent, but to some degree believable, and you can find it in the ground. And you have okay. the minimalist, which is called Tel Aviv. Um, I am. I come from Tel Aviv University. That's where I study. That's my alma mater. I am a minimalist, but I have reserves about the theory. Okay. <laughs> I, don't, <laughs> I don't buy into it 100% because it has its problems. There is also a running joke uh, in the world of Israel archaeology that there are archaeologists who already know what they found. It's just that the dust is in the way. So they have to <laughs> well, this um, is the problem, isn't it? They've decided the Bible is real and they're going to be looking to prove it. Is that not, not no, the way not, to be not, an archaeologist? It's, it's not... That's not the way they, they, they approach things. It's they, okay. they, they, We're talking about excellent archaeologists. I mean, yeah. Really. I know these people. They're excellent. They're the top of the top. Some of them are like are put out dozens of, of excellent students. If they find, I'll give an example. They're, they're, uh, next to my house in Israel, there's an archaeological mound, um, which only eight years ago was first uh, uh, excavated which is rare in Israel, just because it's by the border, it's problematic. Um, and I went to visit the archeologist who, who directed the excavation and we're talking and she's showing me a find and she says, look, this is a lovely jar, 11th century. And I say, yes, it's lovely, it's 10th century. <laughs> <laughs> and that's it. I mean, but the, the, the other thing is that when she says 11th century, she says, she says, it's a lovely jar, 11th century. This is from the period of the judges. So they automatically assign it to a biblical reference, which doesn't happen in the minimalist school. So basically, for the layman, the maximalists are the fox molders and the minimalists, your lot, are the Dana Scullies. The maximalists believe that the truth is out there and that they've just got to move the dust out of the way. They're not, we're not saying that they're manufacturing evidence, but we're saying that they believe that if you dig in the right place, they will find the evidence of the Bible. So they're like the, yeah. the believers and your lot are skeptical to say the least. Yeah, let's let's put it. Yeah, that's that's in roughly that's that's right. Yeah, okay. it's, it's just it's not that it's I wouldn't say I wouldn't use the word believers. I think the, the main difference is that um, the minimalist school doesn't have a problem saying, OK, look, this doesn't line up with the biblical narrative. We have to address this issue. Do they have a problem with admitting when it does? Um, some, sometimes. Today, this is running from 92. So you think we're nearly 30 years at this date. It's huge. <laughs> yeah. There was actually a, a one um, archaeological conference where two archaeologists actually physically uh, punched each other. On oh, stage brilliant. In the middle of an argument. About That's this. epic. Who said archaeology was boring? Ah, uh, no, 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 it's never boring. But, um, but <laughs> this is uh, like, there's, the a, there's is another, do you know what? There's an epic story like that in Titanic Land as well, which ended with one guy ripping off another guy's toupee and spitting on his ball patch, which. Yeah, so, I mean, people. Who people, says people, historians and academics are dull, man? Yes, no, we're crazy all over. <laughs> but no, the thing is that, that today there's some kind of, of you know like um, reaching out and kind of you know uh, bridging the gap in some kind of, the difference is starting to blur a little bit 
There are some people who, who delve into this too much. There is an archaeologist who wrote a paper, and, and listen, this is, this is really, it amuses me every time, in which he, he actually states a thesis in which he, can, he differentiates the different sub-levels of the Iron Age relating to David and Solomon and the, the Omrid dynasty up to 50 to 30 years difference. Phases of 50 years, we're talking 50 years in 3000. It's, it's taking it too far. What is the state of the research today? Where, where does it stand right now and which way is it leaning? It's interesting. It's interesting because a lot of new scholarship has entered the, the field. Um, we're talking, if you remember what I said the last uh, podcast, if anybody wants, maybe link them so you can hear it, uh, yeah. about the whole um, uh, Judean stamp uh, uh, research about dating. Um, dating methods have improved. Everybody's using uh, carbon-14 today. Um, the state of the research is that you still have two factions. Uh, they're still maintaining their um, their stance. And this is maybe the point to, to also add that specifically regarding Israel, this is very, very politically and religiously charged. Yeah. Think about it. I mean, people are willing, you said people are willing to punch each other over this. Exactly. And, and, and these are the archaeologists. Think about people who are not archaeologists and people with religious tendencies, uh, sometimes right-wing. And, and you come straight up and you say, listen, this isn't proven. This isn't fact. But for them, it's fact because it's biblical related. Uh, so it's all tied up together. It's, if, you, if you separate it from the politics and the religion, Today, you have, like in any other uh, research area, you have different theses, different schools of thought, and it's okay, you know. Gilad, I want to ask you a question. Um, yeah. We had, and this blew my mind, because I'm the world's most impatient person, and I don't know how I could live with this, but like essentially, we've spoken to people from Pompeii, and also Mary Beard said it when she was on as well. She said that essentially Pompeii has got to a point now where we just need to leave it alone, because in 100 years' time, when we're all dust, people will come along and there'll be new ways of looking at it and they might find the answers. Is that where I, I my head just can't, like the, the selflessness of that just blows my mind. I want to know. I want to okay. know. It's, it's Is, actually, are we at that place with um, David and Solomon? It's not just David and Solomon. There is um, an unspeaking rule in archaeology in Israel and I think in most of the ancient Near East that you never excavate a mound to the fullest. You okay. always leave areas for future research. Yes, for exactly the reason she said. Think about it. Look today, what's happening. I mean, some of the, again, I'm going back to the earlier podcast we did about the scientific methods. Yeah. Um, some of the, of the uh, Judean stamped handles we talked about with the, with the, magnet, with the magnetism of Earth that I said um, were excavated 100 years ago. But yeah. no one could have done this research 100 years ago. So you need the fresh blood, the fresh way of thinking, the, the new technologies. Uh, one, of the, uh, one of the leading old school archaeologists, I still study with him, David Yusishkin, uh, did something amazing in his final report of Bakish. It's a five volume report. I mean, if you throw it at someone, he dies. Um, <laughs> so, but in the introduction, he has a plan of the tell. And everything that's on that plan is only areas which were not excavated. So you can get a fresh perspective, fresh excavation that hasn't area that hasn't been disturbed to do this future research. Yes, she's completely right. I think this is a mistake, by the way, done by the current Tel Aviv expedition to Tel Megiddo, which have been excavating there from 1992. Yeah. 
I think they're done. They should have been done 10 years ago. You should just leave it. I completely agree. And uh, But in Israel, there is more, uh, regarding biblical archaeology, it's more controlled. People don't dig them, dig the sites to death. Gillard, you've been amazing. I just, I can't, I think archaeology requires patience and I just don't have any. You people are amazing. Um, <laughs> but the idea that you could just say, well, we won't know in my lifetime, but we need to leave it alone for the future. I'd be like, no, what if I could just, just dig a little bit? Um, yeah, well, yeah. I, I have no self. But you know how it works. The most important find that gives you the best answers is always found on the last hour of the last day of the day. Is that when you found your bread stamp? My bread stamp, no. Found regularly on a regular Tuesday morning in the middle of the excavation. But um, I did find uh, the first seven stairs of Schumacher's Mycenaean cave at Megiddo in 2004, on the last day of the excavation. I was actually the first person to step on those stairs since Schumacher was in 100 years. Amazing. And um, if you would like to hear more about uh, Medigo, then Gilad has written a quite exceptional article for the Great War Group magazine uh, this spring, which was about um, Allenby using an Egyptian pharaoh's battle plan in 1918, yeah. which was brilliant. So he's got that. And he has also mentioned he's done a couple of other podcasts for us. We did uh, some more biblical archaeology, but importantly, we did that fantastic one about scientific advances and stuff, which if, you're, if you've suddenly been interested and sparked at the end by us talking about the idea of leaving it the hell alone, uh, go back and listen to that one. And that will explain more why we do that and explain more about carbon-14 and stuff as well. Gillard, as ever, you've been amazing. We love you. Thank you. Been a pleasure as always. Berlin, as soon as Merkel will let us in, I'm coming to see you. Yes, yes, I have, I have some. I'm now building a non World War II in any way tour in Berlin. Oh, brilliant! You're building one. Everything that's pre 1900. Excellent. Can we do like 1914 stuff? Can you go and show me where all the embassies were, if they're still there? Where yes, the we can do 1914. Yes. We, can, we can start. We'll start 1914. I'll take you back to the 1200s. How about that? Perfect. Can't wait. And will there be drink afterwards? Of course. It's Berlin. You can help us at History Hack by joining us via Patreon. It takes quite a lot of effort and a lot of work of quite a big team now to keep us going. And so if you could donate as little as £3 a month, it would be massively appreciated by all of us. There's different levels because Princess Marcus has set it all up with uh, varying rewards and things. So do have a look. Do join us. There's uh, an exclusive Facebook group as well and you can be part of all of it. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash hack history or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support and here's to your next great book.